Hi, we have a very interesting guest on the podcast this week. Derek Fay has written a fascinating book about the history of telecoms in Ireland, and it's actually a very surprising history. It starts in the 1850s, yes, 1850s, when the first subsea cables were being laid, and Ireland was the natural hub for the first transatlantic cables. Later, Ireland's proximity to Nova Scotia made it the natural hub for the first Marconi radio services. We then talk about the state of telecoms during the rise of the new and, in fairness, not very well off Irish state. And finally, we get on to the last decades when there was huge investment in telecoms and there was a tremendous growth of mobile and the internet. And Ireland became a leader in many ways. Derek is a great raconteur and he tells the story with clarity and humour and insight, which I found fascinating. I couldn't quite find the music that Derek wanted, but you see I got a, a sort of close second to it. So enjoy. This is a great podcast. It's a tough competitive business to drive telecom sales. But now there is a new channel that is making all the difference for innovative companies. That's the digital sales channel. At Netzer, we are the leading digital sales channel provider for telecoms companies. Our customers can testify to our ability to listen and implement solutions that work for them. If you are a mobile operator, an MVNO or an eSIM provider, we'd like to understand your business issues and work with you to drive your sales. Contact pat.flynn at netzer.com and we can talk. setback but um, I think it was just, you know it, it, it certainly spawned a lot of companies because the engineering experience mm. was great yeah but so so for I'm talking to Derek Fay and Derek has written a fantastic book called Connecting a Nation the story of telecommunications in Ireland and I it's a f- fantastically produced book it's it's a good few hundred pages it's the history of everything and we're going to talk about that in a second and fantastic illustrations are just uh, probably one of the nicest books I've seen for a nerd like me in a long time. So, Derek, you know, thanks for coming on the podcast. Not at all. Thanks for having me, Pat. And, and, and thank you for the compliments on the book. Not at all. Not at all. It's a really good, great piece of work. And we were just talking there. We're, we're going to talk about maybe three areas. First of all, it's not it maybe not be well known today, but at one stage, Ireland was a leader in global telecommunications. We'll get into that in a second. And then after the state, the new state was formed, it was not well off, poor, and there was a, an underinvestment in telecoms for a long time. And then we're going to talk about the mobile era. So, Derek, you're the expert here. Why was Ireland the world leader in telecoms back in the 1800s? It was largely ge- geographical. Um, so if you look at a map of the Atlantic, um, you know, basically Kerry, and Newfoundland are the nearest points across the Atlantic. So 
if you're building a telegraph cable and it's it's all very new cutting edge stuff um, insulation which was made out of gutta percha is is relatively new so constructing a cable of, of, of any length is is all very new and uh, um, and risky so you minimize your risk um, by making the cable short and, and also the transmission um, there was no amplification or anything available at the time. So um, your transmission loss increased with the length of the cable. So you wanted to minimize that and make sure the message was still you know, understandable at the other end. Um, so hence, Kerry basically became the, a global center for communications. Well, and, and how long was the cable? Well, you wouldn't recall, would you? Um, they, they, they were in use for about 100 years. Really? Um, because, yeah, so the first... Um, the first successful one I think was 1866, and then I think it was closed in about uh, 1965. Yeah, so. Uh, Go on, are you serious? Yeah, That's amazing. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and um, it was at and T. Think closed the Lancaster station in 1965, 1966. So, um, yeah, and they were an amazing employer because if you've been, you know, obviously 1866 it was not that long. You're, you're talking 20 years after the famine. Um, the you know the country side in particular is very poor um so suddenly to have this um technological you know in, innovation uh, appearing in, in in the western part of Kerry and it wasn't just Valencia there was one in in um there was another one in um Waterville and uh which did just, just different different companies um and a smaller one in Balance Gelligs and you know so between them they were an important employer a lot of money um, and, 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 you know, initially people were largely immigrants, they were, they were, you know, people were, were, were brought in who without expertise, but they did employ locals and locals became part of the, of the you know, the technical staff. And, um, you know, so there, there are some quotes in there from people who are, who are still alive, who remember the last few years of the, of the stations. And, uh, you know, they said you wouldn't, I think one of them said you wouldn't have got, found the like of it anywhere in Kerry because, the, you know, the houses which still exist in, 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 in um, Waterville and, and um, Valencia. You know, would have had running water and electricity and so on before anybody else in the locality. Yeah, no, that's amazing. And uh, well, I'm just amazed how long the cable was used for. Yeah, uh, so, uh, yeah. So yeah. good. Yeah. You know, I mean, they did. They did last. What? So it wasn't. I don't think the cable. They, they were. There were several laid. There was. A, there was a flurry of of building really up up to about 1920. Um, so. Um, then what what happened was partly I suppose other routes you know became um, available and so on, but also technology meant that you could basically a, a form of, of initially mechanical multiplexing was was uh, was used, so you could have multiple operators sending multiple messages over one cable, um, mm. so it was using uh, it was using time division multiplexing, but but you put, I mean very innovative just yeah, just a rotor kind of system, yeah, yeah. and um, so I mean they could push more messages through the cable, so that so partly they didn't need to lay any more. Um, uh, but there was also an element that there's certainly one or two um, uh, scholars would say that there was an element that after the War of Independence and the Civil War, there was a lot of disruption to telecoms and, and the stations were, were during the Civil War, um, the, the stations were attacked and put a re rendered inoperable and that there was, a, there was a fear then of basically terrorism in Ireland and, and Ireland oh. was avoided for, for a long time. And when the first telephone, transatlantic telephone cable was laid in the late 50s, it was laid to Scotland, not Ireland. Well, wow, that's amazing. Yeah. yeah. Now, again, I suppose it, the technology had improved a little bit. So the, so the, and the, the, war, the amplification had started. So the transmission loss wasn't quite such the, the issue it had been in, in, you know, in the 1850s and 1860s. But there was, it, it felt that there was a political reason for that as well. Um, yeah, that's right. And at what point did um, 
transatlantic radio become a factor? So that was in the, again, the early part of the 20th century, and Marconi, possibly because of his Irish um, connection, did a few experiments in, in, in Ireland. So there was the, the first kind of record, you know, transmission, radio transmissions are took place um, from Rosslyn Island to, to Ballycastle on, on the mainland, the County Antrim. And then he also did the first sporting kind of coverage was done when he, 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 uh, uh, he, he around the same time, he, he just left uh, uh, County Antrim for a little while, travelled down to Dublin or to, to Dunleary more specifically and covered the, the Kingstown regatta. And he, he, had a, he hired a boat and went out into the bay and he could, he could send um, by, by Morse messages back to um, the harbour master's house in Dunleary. And then they were phoned into, the, it was sponsored by a newspaper. And they were phoned into the newspaper office and newspapers. So not, not only were they printing the paper, but they would put them up in a window. And it was quite a big thing um, at the time to have like live um, uh, <laughs> sports coverage. Um, oh, that's brilliant, and, isn't it? And the, so, so then he kept his interest in Ireland. So when he, when, uh, so the cables were, you know, were, were, there was multiple cables, but the companies kind of operated a cartel. So it's still quite expensive to send a telegram between uh, Europe and, and North America. So Marconi, Thought he could undercut that by using um, Morse, uh, by using a wireless radio transmission, and um, he so he set up a station in Clifton, uh, and that transmitted with the corresponding one in in in, um, in, in Newfoundland, and uh, mm. that operated for, for for many years uh, from I think 1907. I think it opened commercially, um, but again it it closed. The Civil War seemed to have kind of done for it. Um, it, it, it. It was destroyed in the Civil War. And it seemed that the new free state government wasn't all that interested in, in keeping it. Some elements regarded Marconi, because although Marconi was Italian and of partly of Irish origin, the company he founded largely was, it was headquartered in, in, uh, in England and it was perceived as quite a, a British company by 1922. And it seemed that some elements of the new government were so anti-British, they'd be happily let 200 jobs in a very remote part of, of Connemara go down the tubes because rather than have a, a British company there. Yeah, and it's, it's funny. And I mean, I, I know that Marconi company survived in name up into, let's say, the 80s anyway. It was um, yeah. Marconi Elliott. So, like, it's, it's tr a tremendous um, uh, heritage. Uh, yeah, but yeah. so if we, if you just move on, then after the establishment of the Irish state, it was was not well off and uh, it was a rural state and yes, yeah. for many years, um, probably underinvestment. Yeah, there the, was... The new government did, didn't seem to, I mean, it, it didn't inherit a, a, a huge, uh, you know, so Kerry had that, you know, global um, centre for, for the telegraphs. But for the rest of the network wasn't in, in a fantastic state because um, I suppose, it, the, you know, Ireland was quite a poor part of, of the UK. And, you know, the, in, so the demand, it was, you know, it was very much led by the demand. There wasn't much demand, so there wasn't much infrastructure and a vicious circle kind of uh, appeared uh, there. And, and the, the, the new government um, didn't really do it. I mean, the, there wasn't a lot of money around, but they didn't seem to um, target the money on, on telecoms. It just wasn't a priority. Mm -hmm. um, and there's a bit of analysis. One was, uh, there's a man called Lena Brin who was the, um, I think the secretary in the Department of Post and Telegraphs for, for, for decades and has written a memoir and, and seemed to be, you know, a, a very astute and, and, and clever man. And he sort of said that the minister, you know, the, the minister for post class was always, uh, it was, was basically a boy who was bullied. At the, they were always <laughs> kind of slightly, typically non-entities who, you know, we, we should get also, but that they, were, they were appointed, I suppose, by a Taoiseach because 
the Taoiseach didn't regard the Department of Post and Telegraphs as terribly yeah. important. So appointed someone maybe for, you know, geographical rather than needs or whatever, <laughs> political needs rather than their expertise and anything. And they just got pushed around mm. and they didn't stand up. Anyway, the investment really wasn't made. Um, so the country just lagged, like, like behind. And, you, you know, I mean, you could understand there was there was need for housing and everything. There was, a, But, you know, it really did seem by about, I'd say by the 60s, mm-hmm. it really was quite an embarrassment because you now had to change in policy where you were trying to encourage inward investment. And, you know, so you'd have multinational companies, but the multinational company would barely be able to get a, a call across the other side of town, never mind, I call yeah. to headquarters. Mm-hmm. Um, and it... it you know, the, so there was, I think there was an opportunity missed really from during the 60s in particular to like, like take the bull by the horns. And it really was 1979 was the pivotal moment where um, I, I think following a series of strikes, um, I, I think I think the phone system just was absolute liability. It, it, apparently by the late 70s, half of Dáil time was taken up by questions about the phone service. And it would be typically stuff like, can the minister, uh, 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 can the minister say when Mrs. Murphy of Ballygobackwards, uh, 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 who applied for her phone in 1975, uh, is likely to get service. And that's, yeah. you know, it's a way, uh, you know, I think everybody realised this is just a waste of time. No, I remember like uh, when we were young, my dad applied for a phone. I think it took two years. This is in yeah. Dublin. Yeah, is yeah in Dublin. I know. So, yeah. Uh, yeah, and it's, so just for people, uh, there was a huge investment, I think it was the French E10 system, um, yes. was you know, implemented in the network in the 79 early 80s yeah yeah and and you say the french i mean so it, was, it was roughly half uh, alcatel e10 and half of ericsson um xe oh okay ericsson yeah and and um that, that's interesting because they had a lot pnt had a fairly long um tradition you, you know with ericsson and that i mean to be fair well there was a lot of you know, it was largely underinvestment. They did occasionally get things right. And for example, they were, they, they moved to Crossbar fairly early. So they, mm. they moved from Stroud, they, they kind of abandoned Stroud in the late 50s, whereas, the, you know, the British and the Germans and so on were still happily putting it in. Um, and they, they put in a, a Crossbar um, switch when Limerick went autom- automatic in the late 50s. And they had a, you know, between that and other stuff, they had quite a good uh, relationship with, with Ericsson. So well, the French, getting Alcatel in was interesting, but there was, it, it, there was quite a few French ideas borrowed at the time. So one of them was even how the, the um, investment was made. So when Telecom Air was set up, what they had, a, there, was a, there was a kind of finance wing of it, which would buy the equipment, uh, uh, which would get money at market rates from, from the, on the private sector, buy the equipment and then lease it back to Telecom Air. So it didn't, so the government wasn't, um, it wasn't looking for its own money to, to put in. And therefore it kept us off the kind of the government balance sheet, which in the 80s was, was were yeah. in, in dark like space. A special purpose vehicle. Yeah, yeah. No, that's, yeah. that's very innovative and, uh, you yeah. know, admirable. It's, it's yeah. um, no, actually, I, I would say my own feeling, Ericsson also established this big centre in Athlone and, yes. and other centres. And yes. there was thousands of Irish people who went through that. And I, I my own in, in, instinct is a lot of, uh, skills and knowledge of telecoms from an engineering and marketing point of view was due to the Ericsson experience that yeah. many people went on to establish or join other companies, yeah. um, which made Ireland in some respects a, a mini hub of telecom innovation in the 90s and, and forward. Yeah, yeah. And there's the, yes, I, I have a 
story when we were going to mobile there about like Aldiscon and, and uh, well, SMSEs and so on. Yeah. Uh, well, that's me. That. Yeah. I, I, I've, to be honest, Aldiscon has been a big topic on this podcast. Uh, but um, now, so let's get on to mobile. So yeah, the, the magic uh, uh, wand of ride where everyone had a communicator a la Star Trek. And uh, yeah, this was well, amazing, wasn't it? This was, yeah. But also because of, I think Ireland, we suddenly skipped from being like, behind to being ahead of the pack when, when mobile arrived because um and, and partly it's it seems that because the landline network was so underdeveloped that people had just got used to doing without so even by the early 90s by which they you know the waiting list had been cleared and the network was was you know now we're completely modernized and so on the, the phone it, it was still relatively expensive like compared to other countries that telecom knew how you know knew how to charge and uh, and did um <laughs> So it's still quite expensive. And there was this, I, I suspect, a legacy thought of that people had done without it for years. So they didn't, not everybody got a phone in, even though you, you didn't need to wait anymore. And so there was quite a lot of unserved need. Um, it, it said that like, when the, the mobile, when Aircell was created in uh, 1985, and they, they, the, the original plan or the marketing uh, you know, product plan was for a thousand subscribers <laughs> with one sale site on Three Rock Mountain. <laughs> um, but that quickly it went way over that. And it wasn't, you know, the, the Gordon Gecko type um, stockbroker uh, shouting orders down the phone. It was actually um, stuff like builders, uh, tradesmen, um, site offices on building sites, where which were always notoriously difficult to get a, a phone into. Because in the olden days, when you'd wait for four years, the building site the building works would have finished by the time the phone line was put in. <laughs> so they they just moved to mobile immediately because it was just much easier. Mm -hmm. And um, that, uh, you know, it kind of caught on in Ireland. Um, and I, what I credit as the key is, uh, although I, I begin the chapter with the with the uh, the bid for what became ESAT Digiphone being delivered to um, the Department of Communications with great flourish in, in, a, in a very Dennis O'Brien kind of way with with Vikings and... and, yeah. and uh, uh, and, and, and violins and so on. Um, that actually, it was uh, the rival um, in, in terms of the state, the incumbent with Stephen Brewer at the, at the helm. And that uh, around the just soon after um, ESA Digital was launched, um, Ersel launched uh, Ready to Go. And again, they were quite early. There was, I think there was only about two other, um, I think Portugal and, and, and Italy, the mm. operators there had brought in prepaid with some success. But suddenly, um, this meant that you know that whole risk of having a phone, that that idea that you could be landed with a big bill, um, just yeah. that, that whole risk was taken away. You could walk in uh, and and walk out of a shop with a phone. You could gift it to someone. So, yeah, no, I, on a personal uh, story, Derek, um, I was working in Aircell at the time, and I wasn't I wasn't working on the the Ready to Go project, but I do remember being in Stephen's office when. Uh, a marketing woman came in with the blister pack for the analog 088 yeah. um, ready to go phone at 99 pounds and i remember yeah. thinking how can they sell it at 99 pounds i mean i mean i thought it was fantastic yeah um and it was i forget it was maybe 10 or 20 pound a month top up and i was I, eventually i was involved in the top up side and mm. it was um it, I, I forget the exact statistics but say within a year uh, in fairness to Digicel, they, they were soon after on on the pack. Oh yeah, yeah, um, no, we, we yeah, yeah, I was there, I was there. We launched Speakeasy um, soon after. Yeah, um, but uh, there was yeah. there was probably a million between Airsell and Digi, Digi um, 
Digiphone. Digiphone, sorry. Yeah. Digiphone. Um, there was probably a million prepaid within 18 months. Yeah, exactly. You know, it was exactly, just yeah. outstanding. Yeah. And it was, uh, let, let me just tell you a bit, little bit of a, a backroom story was uh, when um, Stephen launched Ready to Go, he tr was trying to pip uh, Digiphone um, and they couldn't charge for SMS. So they launched it with free SMS, which was seen as a marketing stroke of marketing genius. Yeah. The truth was they couldn't charge <laughs> yes, until yes. it took off and then they started charging. But anyway, you know, I'm sure yeah. it's the same on your side. Yeah. yeah. Um, I, I, I actually think we blocked maybe SMS because I can remember being in the O2 Digifone call center in Limerick for a, just for a meeting on the day that SMS was turned on uh, for prepaid. And the call queues were, you, 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 there were these wall boards that gave the queue times and so on, and they were really high. And I, I knew, I, I knew kind of how somebody explained to me how to read them and you could just knew it was quite busy. And I was going, what's going on? Is there an actual problem? No. And it, you could just hear all this one. No, no, you can actually send the messages. It's not just from voicemail. You can send, you, you know, because that's all SMS had been up to, up to around that point was the voicemail system. Sure. Section one. But yeah. people, people were now sending messages to one another and, and people, people were receiving them and going, what do I do with this? <laughs> no, no, and I, 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 again, like I apologize to anyone who's um, younger than us. Yeah. Back in those days, you'd have to tap out the message on the numeric keypad yes. on the phone. And I remember when we, before it was actually launched, a very senior marketing person doing that and saying, this is the most ridiculous thing ever. It'll never take <laughs> off. And <laughs> what a misread of what teenagers are willing to do to yes. send a message. Yeah. yeah. But then, I know. So, so yeah, no, it was really amazing. And I, 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 I reproduced the diagram from your book. Uh, well, it was a public, um, publicly available diagram and tagged Stephen Brewer on it. And he was thrilled. He just thought this was so fantastic. So, so thanks, Derek. Yeah, um, yeah. So, so you, and I just thought this was a very interesting point because I hadn't thought about it. The internet in Ireland, what do you suggest was one of the main drivers of interest in the internet? I suggest it was Reiner. Um, I think that, you're right. Yeah, that until so Reiner launched their online booking engine in February 2000, just after the start of the millennium. Um, they were they were relatively early. Our linguists certainly weren't doing it. A few other airlines had done it, but it was more as an adjunct to just the traditional way. I mean, again, for the benefit of younger listeners, how you used to book a, a, a plane <laughs> to, to plane ticket was you you walk, typically walked into a travel agent. They used to be situated on streets. <laughs> and you said, I'd like to fly to London, please. And they, they looked up the computer themselves and they just kind of give you some options. And then you said, OK, I'll take that one, please. And you handed them maybe cash and whatever. And then you walked out of the shop with a, with a paper ticket. Um, so yeah, that was the it way sounds you, like you described oil lamps and pony and traps when you, it is a bit when, you like that, really, when you when you think about it now compared to the way the, the aviation industry works. So, so and uh, those travel agents paid a handsome commission for, for for doing that, and that's how Ryanair worked as well. But Michael Leary, I think, you know, saw that maybe they could muscle that for some of their ticket sales they could they could sell direct and and, and get and get them out. And I think it was when EasyJet started doing it, that he decided, okay, I'll do the same. But you know, Reiner and Ryanair. Um, he, so Eddie Wilson, who's now actually the head of the airline, I think Michael Leary's chair or whatever, um, well, had just started as HR director. And he, when he, he'd come from Gateway just down the road in, 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 in uh, Clanchock, and um, he had been involved there uh, in setting up an intra, intranet, remember them, to connect up mm -hmm. the different Gateway sites. And there had been a 15-year-old there working in the, in, the, in the summer 
uh, called John Beckett, and he'd done the internet and seemed to be quite a whiz on, on you know, uh, those kind of protocols. And he asked him, uh, would he be interested in, in um, you know, developing an online booking uh, engine for them? So, so John Beckett got, a, got a, a slightly older friend of his, and the two of them wrote basically the code for uh, a website over the millennium, while the rest of us were all worried about Y2K and parties. Um, they, 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 they were writing this uh, um, website and they launched it in, it was, Reiner launched it in February 2000. And, you know, there were, po- there were polls done of um, RF people and their attitude to internet and internet commerce and in, say in 1999, I think 84% percent of people or some figure like that said that they wouldn't uh, buy anything with their credit card online. Mm. And suddenly, um, you know, Reiner automatically, it was five pounds cheaper if you bought online mm-hmm. and it took off like wildfire. And as I say, you know, uh, Mary Murphy in Bally Backwards discovered that she could she could visit her friend in, or her sister in London for 15 pounds uh, if she bought the tickets online. And suddenly the market just it, it just flipped. And we went from, you know, quite low down in Internet adoption uh, compared to our peers to being up at the top and particularly in terms of e-commerce on airlines. So we mm. almost, almost led the, 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 the pack. That's 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 great. And like I, I, when you put it that way, I think you've nailed it, to be honest, that's the most uh, fantastic use case for the internet. And I mean, I have to say uh, the, the airline sector in Ireland, is, the amount of innovators in the airline sector is just world-class. So it's, yeah, it's, yeah, no, you know, we, we punched, it's one, certainly we punched above our weight on that. Uh, how the our, um, uh, aircraft leasing sector will deal with all their planes in Russia is a, mm, a question. Yeah, yeah. But okay, look, Derek, that's absolutely fantastic. And um, thanks for taking the time to talk to us. Uh, on this podcast, we ask the guests if they have a piece of music they'd like to play it on. So uh, do you have anything? I, I do. I'm just going to set the context here. Um, uh, uh, uh. So, you know, we spoke about 1979 and a huge investment program. Um, mm-hmm. So the, I think it was 1980 then, the minister, uh, there was a reshuffle and um, Albert Reynolds became Minister of Post and Telegraphs. Um, and he wasn't, I think he was minister for only about 18 months, but he's very much associated, I was a child at the time, and I very much associated him with been out there, um, you know, cutting every ribbon on a telephone exchange or a telephone booth. So he was very much that, that he saw this as as uh, his own project. Um, and there was a scene uh, on on the television of at some, I think it was a Fianna Fáil party or something like this, at some function where he sang on stage and he uh, it, it kind of almost I think I know uh, this video. yes and he sang <laughs> put your sweet lips a little close to the phone <laughs> so okay the, so that's, that's going to be that, that's what it's like the I think that's that, the most like, embarrassing play out song we ever got Derek but I still play it <laughs> <laughs> so I have to say it's not necessarily one of my favourite songs but I think it's quite appropriate uh, and, and, and for, for people who are abroad uh, Albert Reynolds eventually became our Taoiseachar Prime Minister so it wasn't like he was a, an inconsequential politicians no no absolutely not well, but no, also okay. he ran uh, he, he'd run a, series, a set of ballrooms around the, the, the midlands of the country so he knew a bit about singing and, and, audience, and music uh, and whatever yeah. fair enough and uh, where people where can people get the book Derek so the book is available uh, if, you want. if you want to go old school it's available in most major bookstores in Ireland um, places like uh, Dubray um um, Hodges, Figus, and um, Waterstones uh, have it. Some store, some branches of Easton, Easton's have it. Some of the bit, the bigger independent stores around the country have it, and it's also available online. Um, 
And just to call out one in particular, Kenny's, uh, Kenny's in Galway, uh, have, have it on a nice price. Uh, but other, uh, other online retailers are available. Brilliant. Okay, so here comes Albert. And thanks, Derek, for a really fantastic podcast. I really appreciate it. Well, well thank you, Pat. Can you tell us anything about him at all? Well, I know some, some, some things about him already. Is he, and I, is he, I mean, we've been told he might be an Iranian. Is I don't think so. You, you don't think so? Is he Larry Downey Minister? An Irishman? I think he's an Irishman, but I'm not certain yet. Have they made, has he made any demands, apart from wanting to go to Tehran? Uh, the publication of the third uh, secret of Fatima. What on earth is that? It's religious writing. That's a religious secret. It's not for me to say what it is. Put your sweet lips a little closer to the phone Let's pretend that we're together all alone I'll tell the man to turn the jukebox way down Your friend there with you, he'll have to go Whisper to me, tell me do you love me true Or is he holding you the way I do Though love is blind, make up your mind got to know Should I hang up or will you tell him he'll have to go You can't say the words I want to hear while you're with another man Do you want me answer yes or no Darling I will understand Put your sweet lips a little closer to the phone Let's pretend that we're together all alone I'll tell the man to turn the jukebox way down friend there with you, you'll have to go.